Hello and welcome to Smith and Sheridan on Biotech, a podcast on the science and business of biotechnology, presented by me, Cormac Sheridan. And me, Andy Smith. Hello, everyone. Hello, Cormac. How are you? I'm good, Andy. How are you? Good, thanks. Are you reeling with shock from the news from the Federal Trade Commission? Uh, I'm not so much reeling with shock of that. I'm reeling with the shock of investors who are reeling with shock, if you like. And just for listeners who weren't necessarily abreast of the story, we're actually referencing the US Federal Trade Commission's legal complaint against Sanofi's proposed licensing deal with Mays Therapeutics concerning a drug that's only completed phase one trials for a rare genetic disease called Pompeii disease. Basically, Sanofi controls the market. It essentially, at the moment at least, enjoys a 100% market share in the US, which is the most lucrative market for these types of therapies. There is actually a new drug, a combination treatment from Amicus Therapeutics, recently gained FDA approval at the end of September. So the commercial launch, I guess, is only happening right now. And that in itself actually doesn't pose a competitive threat to Sanofi's monopoly because it's actually approved for patients whose status isn't improving on enzyme replacement therapy. It's a sort of a second line therapy. So the FTC decided in its wisdom that this transaction between Mays and Sanofi would essentially help to maintain Sanofi's monopoly and deny patients the possibility of competition from another entrant in the marketplace. The sort of biotech cheerleaders slash commentators were up in arms about this because they saw the transaction representing business as usual. This is what happens in the biotechnology innovation ecosystem. Small innovative companies with interesting therapies routinely sell their wares to big pharma companies and the obvious target for these types of transactions is always somebody who is already present in that marketplace because they know how it works they have the commercial infrastructure to address that market etc 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 and these types of deals are pretty commonplace and it's interesting and i'll try for the moment to be unusual and present both sides just as you have cormac you can see from the investors in maize and in most other smaller biotechnology companies you know this is the lifeblood of biotechnology that smaller companies get either acquired or sign a licensing deal or do a transaction with a much bigger company and as we talked about just a few minutes ago who knows Pompeii disease better than Sanofi? I mean, because with the Genzyme acquisition, they've effectively bought two products to the market and physicians know them because they're providing the only symptomatic therapy that gives relief to this terrible inherited disease to the patients. Also, look at the side of maize. You know, if you wanted a partner, if you said, right, I'm developing this product and I don't know about Pompeii disease, but I think it works in Pompeii disease, who would I like to partner it with? Mm. Obviously, it would be Sanofi, right? Because mm. they own the market. Mm. But I can also see the side of the FTC, because particularly US consumers have got a lot to thank the FTC for. They're stepping in on rubbish fees or spontaneous fees by not just Airbnb, but hotels and airlines that put fees on top and think of you know, imaginative new names just to charge people for not doing anything. So the FTC's got a lot of clout and it's got a lot of public support. So on both sides of the arguments, there are 
valid views. I think in this particular transaction, and a number of others have come before it, so let's come back to this specific transaction in a minute, but there have been a history in recent times, and I guess that's what people are worried about. If the FTC is starting to take more action in buy it between transactions between biotech and pharma, then you know that lifeblood of biotech is starting to be not cut off, but constrained. So some of the big transactions in the past, Pfizer has just closed a deal to acquire Seattle Genetics at the ADC oncology company. And earlier on in the year before that deal was announced at Pfizer, Merck was announced as the suitor of choice, obviously, because Merck's got a much bigger um, well, could be better oncology franchise than, than Pfizer. And it's growing, unlike Pfizer's oncology franchise, which seems to be withering by the quarter and floundering. So you can see why the FTC might have stepped in with but, Merck, although there's no confirmation of that. But, yeah, and there's plenty of competition, obviously, in the oncology marketplace. Yeah, and this is something that I was trying to remember what, that constitutes a monopoly position. You know, it's not close to 100. I think it's even if you have 20% of the market or something, then that's getting close to be anti-competitive. But, you know, the maze deal is much more than that. Yeah. And Merck plus Seattle Genetics or CGEN would have been much more than that as well. And of course, that would bolt on to a growing franchise. So I think if the FTC did have a word with someone at Merck to say, oh, hold on a bit, you know, these rumours are going to be resulting us taking a cold hard look at this, then probably they did Pfizer a favour because Pfizer more this week than any other week in the last 52 weeks or even three years, Pfizer needs those bolt-on sales. Is there though an argument to be made that they were anticipating anti-competitive behaviour on the part of Sanofi, but given that this is not actually a commercial product that has FDA approval, it, it is a, an R&D program that is progressing through clinical trials, that potentially they could maybe force Sanofi to take action later on in the development life cycle, such as, for example, if the drug did gain FDA approval, then the FTC might require Sanofi to device one or other of its products in order to encourage innovation. Because right now, we're in this kind of an interregnum period. We don't know whether Mays will be able to secure another deal or not. True. If it doesn't secure another deal, it's unlikely to be able to raise the financing itself to take this all the way to approval, especially given the current financial state of the marketplace. And I'm wondering, is that sending out a kind of a negative message to innovative biotech companies that you have to be very careful what markets you operate on? Because don't forget, this is an orphan designated product or these are orphan designated yeah. diseases and there were incentives put in place to encourage companies to engage in these areas because they're very low patient numbers and therefore it's kind of very difficult to develop drugs that are commercially successful on, on the usual terms is Sanofi being penalized for the fact that it's made a commitment to the Pompeii disease space I mean that's what we'll be phrasing it yeah and I think there are two points here the first one is Pompeii disease or the therapeutic treatment of Pompeii disease is not like the products and the indications involved in either Amgen's acquisition Horizon or Pfizer's acquisition of Seattle Genetic. They own Pompeii disease at the moment. And I think a Machiavellian thought might be that if the FTC are worried about what Sanofi might do, not just now, but in the future, in a year or two's time. So they could... I mean, it's possible you could design a clinical trial to make that molecule fail in development and then drop it 
or some other reason, like Pfizer did when they bought Asperion, we bollocks, we can't make the product now. So we're dropping it and it never seen the light again. So potentially if you have control... I, I, I'm sure Pfizer might phrase it differently. But yeah, anyway. I'm sure. Sure. Uh, they're American, right? So they probably don't use that word. But um, so theoretically, if you have control of the indication and a new product, you can decide what happens to it. Obviously, with the best will in the world, Sanofi would want that product to go on and replace and augment their existing Pompeii franchise, which goes back to the FTC's original monopoly concerns. And look, I'm sure Maze, the people who run that company are, are not naive idiots. Like They're clever people. And most commercial licensing deals will have all sorts of clawback provisions if Sanofi decides to sit in the programme or doesn't progress it properly. And if Sanofi behaved egregiously, I'm sure Mays would have some sort of clawback facility. I'd be and and, and I'm did. sure they didn't, right? Because they signed a deal to explore a partnership before they actually did that transaction that the FTC mm -hmm. stepped in. But I mean, I think you may be giving management of Mays a little too much credit because the executives in biotech companies have a lot of stuff to think about. Clinical, True. regulatory, commercial, yeah. funding, yeah. that sort of thing. And if you think... Um, yeah. oh. You've also uh, get a lawyer in and talk about national security implications or FTC implications. And that's probably one step behind which most companies are unless they've experienced before. But I think coming back to your previous point, one of the aspects is that sure enough, the partner of the maize product for Pompeii disease won't now be Sanofi. But any other company with some money and some interest, who knows more? about Pompeii disease than Snoffy. If they've endorsed that product, then they've done a lot for another company. They've done a lot of your hard work for you. The transaction between Mays and, and Snoffy sort of suggested that Snoffy thought this product could work. Mm. You know, coming from the industry leader, that's a great endorsement for any other company that would step in now and might be able to license it as well. And what's kind of up for grabs is a billion dollar plus product franchise. I mean, the third quarter sales of Sanofi's old enzyme replacement therapies, variously called myozyme or lumozyme, depending mm. on which patient population they were approved for, that, that hit 255 million euros in the third quarter. And then it's next generation products, which is supposedly modified to improve cellular uptake, as they call it. And I curse the marketing people. They, they <laughs> They, different names for different markets. I mean, they already have a brand and a generic name, but then they let's have two brand names. So in the US, it's called Next Viazyme, and in Europe, it's called Next Viadyme. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's a Z and a D between friends? I mean, honestly, you, you just wonder what the hell is the, point, is the point there. Anyway, all that aside, this one got 58 million euros in, in Q3 sales. Um, it was approved more recently in August 2021. But I know that Sanofi is aggressively trying to switch patients over to it, even though I think mm. the pricing is the same. And the pricing is high. I mean, it's for adults, I think they're at over $750,000 a year, which is a lot of money. And there's about, I think, a thousand patients on treatment in the US, if I remember correctly. That, that mm. doesn't have to add up, actually, when you do the math. It probably does, actually, roughly speaking, because the, the, the pricing is lower, actually, for pediatric patients. So those kind of prices put a very interesting ceiling because these are enzyme replacement therapies so they're biologic drugs that are made in a some sort of a cell production system the oral drug that maize was developing it has a different mechanism entirely it's not replacing the enzyme that's missing yeah. Yeah. Due to genetic mutations instead of being an enzyme replacement therapy that you're supplementing something that's absent you're actually putting in an oral that's you take a drug by mouth and it, it inhibits glycogen synthase 
And just for people who are not up in the biochemistry of the disease, basically Pompe disease arises from the absence of an enzyme called acid alpha-glucosidase, which breaks down glycogen into glucose. And in the absence of that enzyme, you get these glycogen accumulations, which are deeply damaging to the patients and mm-hmm. multiple tissues, especially cardiac and lung and skeletal muscle, I believe. And it's a terrible, devastating disease and affects them in multiple ways and usually leads to early death as well, as far as I'm aware. So the clever twist that Mays was doing is that they are not placing the last enzyme. They are doing something called substrate reduction. So that glycogen synthase makes glycogen from subunits of glucose. So they're trying to sort of push the equilibrium balance away from glycogen accumulation. Now, the obvious no-brainer for anybody is that you would like to combine the two therapies, wouldn't you? And that's what's been happening with, I think, Amicus's drug. And in fact, Amicus... But the Amicus drug, that's not a substrate inhibitor. That's actually there to just... I think it just stabilizes the enzyme. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been I've been trying... You can help me here because your vocabulary is obviously better than mine, Cormac. I've yeah. been trying to think of the word that describes Amicus's drug. They've got similar drugs oral drugs in in Fabre's disease but you remember oh, chaperones type chaperone that's yeah. the word yes they're, cha- they're chaperones i visited amicus in cranberry new jersey many years ago and i, I met their very impressive ceo john crowley who's mm-hmm. just jumped ship to join oh. BioPlus, their ceo and his story of it's a sidebar to this story he was the person on which the character played by brendan fraser in that movie extraordinary measures is basically John and his wife Aileen, they two of their three children have Pompeii disease. Yeah. And he had no background in biotech whatsoever. And he started this company because he wanted to try and find a cure for his children. What mm-hmm. an extraordinary noble endeavor. And of course, ERTs are not cures, unfortunately. They no, are. but I mean, they are the best drugs out there. If you can Absolutely. find a, an inherited disease that responds to an ERT and it can be given effectively as a drug, yep. then... I mean, again, I hesitate to use disease modifying, but certainly progression modifying is what it does. And everything else, including the amicus oral drugs for these types of diseases, they're just pale comparisons or perhaps even additions to the existing ERT therapy. And again, that may be what the FTC were thinking about when they're thinking, well, okay, this is not a disease progressing modifying drug that MACE is developing. But it would also be a nice add-on to any company that has a big Pompeii franchise. So that hasn't stopped Amicus over the years developing its original drugs that aren't as good as enzyme replacement therapies. But the FTC complaint, from what I've read, a lot of it is heavily redacted, doesn't make any mention of the possibility of combining the maize drug MZE001, Mm. any of the Sanofi ERTs. And... It is potentially something that an academic investigator could do a small-scale trial on, potentially, because it obviously wants to establish the safety and efficacy first of the maize therapeutics products. That has to be done first, I guess. But it's a no-brainer to try to do a combination trial, and you would expect synergies. And you, therefore, could see that there is potential for innovation arising out of Sanofi's deal with maize that goes beyond the merits of getting the maize product to the market. It also includes the synergy of actually having potentially a combination therapy that is 
much better than either drug administered on their own. Mm. And that's interesting that we settled on Amicus in, in this discussion of Mason-Offy because they're the next most obvious Good point. Candidate. They've just raised $400 million as well. Um, And they've got a history of combining ERTs with small molecule chaperones or other molecules in in, in these types of diseases. So, uh, And it will be really interesting as the FCC sends around saying, no, no, you're already there in Pompeii as well. So, no. Well, that's interesting too. Well, I suppose they have no market share. I mean, you can't. They would be attempting to take market share from Sanofi, and this would be a very interesting way for them to do so. Maybe Amicus would be the people that would be sending Christmas cards to um, yeah, yeah. key members. Well, I, yeah, that's <laughs> true. I, I, they certainly shouldn't be expecting any from Sanofi this year. Uh, no. Which brings me to another point, though, about Sanofi and, and other big pharma companies. I just did a very quick and dirty search on the uh, FTC website to see what other actions Sanofi might have been involved in. And there's numerous ones that some of them are quite historical at this point, but multiple accusations that they were deterring generic competition through various ruses, miswording patent disclosures in the orange book, gaming the system. And you could argue that in terms of distorting competition in the pharmaceutical marketplace, delaying generic entrance is much greater effects on patients and on payers than effectively halting early stage deals involving early stage assets. But on the other hand, you know, if I were a pharma company and I've been in a pharma company, that's an obvious thing for me to spend my money on to prolong that franchise. Just look at how Humira has gone on much longer since it should have done. So I think that's part and parcel of drug commercialization, although perhaps the unkind face of drug commercialization, if you like. But I mean, it's interesting that the that we're talking about Christmas cards and the FTC. Okay, the space that's left for the snuffy one on its mantle place, you know, they might be getting them from Pfizer even. You know, we talked about Pfizer and, and Seattle yeah. Genetics. Uh, and the FTC did step in there, at least to some extent, even though Pfizer got flagging an oncology franchise, to say, no, you divest your anti pdl one monoclonal antibody for cancer that you licensed from German Merck. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine the oncology people, product managers in Pfizer, they were popping champagnes at that because it's been <laughs> a millstone around their neck. Yeah. It, is, it is the lowest selling. It is the worst profile of PD-1 antibodies. So to say... You've got to divest the rights to that. Even though a lot of companies just want to have their own products so they can do clinical trials without having to get their hands on their competitor products. It just makes it easier to do the trials. Yeah. In fact, lots of small biotech companies did do that with Favon, CEO, is it called? And it's not generated a lot of sales from it. So Yeah. And also another company that will be sort of following developments, I think, with a certain amount of concern is Ask Bio, which Bayer is about to acquire. I think they announced the deal on the 26th of October. Because they have, no, I have this wrong. I don't mean AskBio. I mean Arrow Biotherapeutics. Right. AskBio is a, one of a bunch of companies doing gene therapy in this area. Again, it's all early stage. Spark Therapeutics is another one, and also Astellas. But Arrow Biotherapeutics is taking a similar approach as Maze. They have, again, a substrate reduction strategy, another glycogen synthase inhibitor but it's actually based on si rna mm. rather than a, so it wouldn't be an oral drug it would be typically injected but si rna drugs are really smart drugs they're very clever they're usually you can get very effective reduction of gene expression long-term dosing three months if not six months is quite typical 
it's obviously a modality pioneered by Alnylam and pharmaceuticals in particular. They've made a huge success in the area. And they're just, I think, one of the most innovative little tricks that the biotech industry has come up with in the last couple of years. I, they're, they're I, I don't think the investigators at the FTC are sophisticated enough, well, I might be doing them down, yeah. to try and distinguish between therapeutic modality and an SIRNA. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, this is just me going off on one because I'm just an SIRNA fan. But... Replacement. And you raise an interesting point, though. But, 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 yeah, it's, it's, about, it's not it's just about... the FTC. Yeah. It's not just the yeah. FTC you've got to worry about. You know, yeah. If you're an international company yes. trying to license a US company or even a Chinese yeah. company, as we saw with yeah. a transaction early on in the year with FSTAR, if you're Chinese mm-hmm company wanting to acquire a UK company that uh, that also then has US operations. And that's going to come up against the FTC. And in the UK, the SIA, National Security and Investment Act, in the UK, uh, there was, when that discussion came out about Mays and Snoffy, lots of people were saying, no, no, why are the FTC looking at a licensing transaction? Because that's what they were stopping, a licensing transaction between those two companies, rather than an acquisition. Mm. But the NSIA, uh, National Security Investment Act in the UK, actually mm. includes licensing transactions. So regulators, anti-competitive yeah. regulators around the world will be looking at the FTC's action. Yeah. Yeah. And then the FTC might also look at the uh, NSIA in the UK and think, yeah, licensing transactions. Let's have mm. a look at Sanofi Mays. Yeah. And Sanofi Mays and also with Arrow and whoever they might want to partner yeah. with. And one thing we know for sure, it won't be Sanofi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it just makes life a little bit more difficult for some startups who are operating in fields where there is a dominant monopoly incumbent. And that's typically going to be in the orphan spaces. And it's now the classic trade-off this week of... You know, biotech investing because we said that those sorts of transactions licensing deals between biotech companies and big pharma or big biotech they're the lifeblood of the technology sector but yeah. also with the patent cliff approaching for the biosimilars already here for the biosimilars pharma and big pharma need the biotechnology companies products as well so while the need is out there and the, the other paradox is that the same with Sanofi Mays. If you want to license your product to the best company in the world, the company that knows the physicians and the doctors and has the channel and the marketing and the R&D and the regulatory experience, then they're going to raise the hackles of the FTC because they're thinking of monopoly positions. And you're going to get a lower price if you go with somebody else because they're going to have to invest an awful lot more cash to actually build a position in that marketplace. Exactly what happened with Seattle and CGen and Merck versus CGen versus Pfizer. Yeah. Does this mean all transactions are off? I no. very much doubt it and I very no. much hope. That, does it mean that pharma companies that want to bolster their pipelines, that want to get past this by a similar cliff, are going to have to diversify slightly beyond the therapeutic areas that they're traditionally comfortable with? And you know, J&J, for instance, when asked about what are you interested in corporate development? They say, well, we're only interested in this area, this area, this area. And, and Novartis say the same sort of thing and should appeal to you because one of them is SIRNA. So they might have to become more diverse to sidestep this anti-competitive regulation. Yeah. So basically, it would help everybody if everybody became a little bit more diversified. But yes, I mean, companies do like to 
aggregate their expertise and capabilities around key areas. So the whole yeah, idea. There's of- a lot of synergies there, right? I mean, yes. regulators and clinicians yes. speak the same language and marketing people and mm-hmm. reps, you know, uh, like to talk to people who are in the same therapeutic yeah. area because you don't want to be a primary care. I mean, yeah. and primary care sales forces are, are dying on the vine at the moment because they have to deal with one product one week and one product the next week. So, and of course, as I think aloud, though, as well, I'm going to roll back a point I made earlier about combining the maze therapeutics product with the ERTs. I'm sure that's going to happen anyway. I mean, they haven't gone into patients yet. They've done a phase one on healthy volunteers where they saw that it certainly affected the activity of the enzyme in, in patients who don't have Pompe disease, or sorry, in, in volunteers, rather. But if you're giving it to patients in America or in wealthy European countries, those patients more than likely will be on ERT anyway. They won't be taking an ERT holiday. It'll be layered on top. So that actually puts pay to my previous point. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't think Pompe disease, if it's like any other type, that type of disease, it's one single mutation. Because these are big proteins that you can get yeah. a mutation in the gene encoding them and it'll fall. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure, but not all patients respond, which is why we have the amicus type chaperones and the maize type molecules in order that you can have those combination yeah. therapies. And there's infantile onset and adult onset and juvenile onset. And that depends on whether or not there's some residual function in the acid alpha-glucosidase enzyme or not. But it's one of those stories that has massive implications for the industry, I think. That's why it's gotten kind of so much comment online. It's it's not a sort of probably a a huge news story for your average punter but it actually this one's going to be discussed for the next year at every single conference about the industry because in the sector the ftc uh, will be the grinch that stole christmas (laughs) unless in time the maize product is successfully developed by another company yeah and is available at a fraction of the cost of the enzyme replacement therapies And we will also have the one-off gene therapies coming through, hopefully, Mm -hmm. which will cost a lot of money. But when set against 750K a year, even paying two, three million for a gene therapy might actually seem like good value. And uh, Mm. you throw this on top for hopefully a small price, although I know the pharmaceutical industry isn't necessarily backwards about charging <laughs> money for small molecules either. Anyways, it's easily genericizable and the ERTs generally oh. by similar haven't chased them because the market's too small, I think there's just no point. And, and they don't have the expertise either. These are very complicated diseases to treat. Mm-hmm. So yes, the FTC, is it the Grinch that stole Christmas or is it the responsible government oversight body that has maintained competition on behalf of patients everywhere Mm. well depending on your perspective there's no reason why they can't be both yes and i think maybe time will tell yeah yeah till the next time andy thank you cheers comic bye-bye bye everyone